0: I'll be reading this morning from 1 Corinthians 11, starting with verse 2. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covers dishonors his head but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man, for man did not come from woman, but woman from man." Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk." And starting with verse 33. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. This is the word of the Lord.
1: I'd like to begin uh, by reading an excerpt from a document published by a presidential administration regarding responding to the pandemic. It says this, The federal government will collaborate fully with international partners to attempt containment of a potential pandemic wherever sustained and efficient human-to-human transmission is documented and will make every reasonable human uh, effort to delay the introduction of a pandemic virus to the United States. The plan further recognizes the federal government must provide clear criteria and decision tools to inform state, local, and private sector planning and response actions. Now, this document goes on to outline The primary responsibilities of the uh, federal government include supporting containment efforts overseas, providing guidance of recommended protective measures, and modifying laws and regulations to facilitate the national pandemic response, and modifying monetary policy to minimize the impact on the economy, and as well as supporting the development and distribution of vaccines and antiviral medications. Sounds like a reasonable plan, right? Especially in light of what's happened this year. Now, this plan was published in the CDC's National Strategy for Pandemic Influenza document. Looks like that. Commissioned not by the current president, and it wasn't even commissioned by the previous president. It was published in 2006, 14 years ago, under President George W. Bush. Uh, Whenever the pandemic recedes in our nation, Much will be written about what could have been done differently and how the various levels of authorities could have provided better leadership as the pandemic unfolded, especially when there was already a plan in place, at least on paper. Perhaps the federal government should have followed this plan and provided more effective leadership early on. And perhaps local governments may have been too overbearing in their mitigation measures. And perhaps the risk of COVID is not serious enough to warrant the kind of actions that, the, that has impacted jobs and education and the economy that, so significantly as it has this year. And perhaps we didn't do enough early on to prevent nearly 300,000 excess deaths over the same period in previous years, and 223,000 of those due to COVID. Why am I saying this? All this to say is where there is confusion about roles and authority, this can impact the effective functioning of a community. Role differentiation and authority structures are not inherently bad things. The question is, what kind of roles and authority structures serve a group of people best? And this is the area that we're entering into through today's text in 1 Corinthians 11. And like all the perhapses that I just listed, outlining the government's pandemic response, today's passage conjures up a lot of perhapses as well we look at a difficult passage that has often been used to limit women's participation in the worship life of the church. And to our modern ears living in an increasingly egalitarian world, words found in the passages like this that include head and hair cover, hair, hairstyles and head coverings and headship and authority. Those terms might rankle many. Yet if we desire to trust scripture as a faithful revelation of God's character and mission, then we must confront passages like these that are difficult. At worst, what we might do is we're tempted to do away with the words of Paul here with our apparently enlightened positions and understanding of God's character. And at best, we might skim over this chapter and say, we'll come back to it another day. Well, perhaps today is that day for you. As with any text, I encourage that you don't read... uh, react to the misapplications of texts and end up throwing out the truth that is being conveyed. And if we believe that scripture is inspired by God, both in its writing and copying and translating and the reading of God's word, then we must do the hard work of wrestling with difficult texts like these. We must be cautious of responding from our modern perspective and contemporary values alone that might be imposed on an ancient text. The fact that it's ancient and difficult doesn't make it untrue or irrelevant. And the challenge of this passage is that a number of things aren't immediately clear to us. So we're going to look at the setting, looking at a situation, and a solution that Paul presents. You know, as we've been learning so far, the Corinthian church is a diverse group of people. Ethnically, culturally, socioeconomically and with different spiritual backgrounds set in a city that is polytheistic. They were navigating what it meant to follow Christ as formerly predominantly Jewish faith that now is embracing Greek and formerly pagan worshippers into the community. This led to conflict over, as we've been learning so far in the series, over which leaders to follow and dealing with moral issues like sexual immorality and marriage and, and food loss. And here in chapter 11, up to 14, Paul turns his attention to a different category of concerns. He turns his attention to addressing appropriate worship together as a community. Now, Kenneth Bailey, who I've been relying on a lot, reframes these chapters in this following way. You can see it up on the screen. This whole section is about, from chapters 11 to 14, is about men and women in the church. And in this first part of chapter 11, it's about men and women leading in worship. And if you look at the bottom part, this chiastic structure. Chapter 14 is about men and women talking in the church. And then you go to the next level about order and worship, the sacraments of the Lord's Supper in the second part of chapter 11. And that parallels order and worship in chapter 14, prophets and speaking in tongues. And then you go back to another level, gifts and the nature of the body. That parallels chapter 14's the spiritual gifts. And what's at the center of this chiasm, these series of chapters? It's chapter 13, which is love. And if you if you, you can't read all this, there's, uh, in the YouTube description uh, box, there's a link to the slides. If you want to look at that later, or you can hit pause and look at it in more detail. You'll see at the center of this, ar- this argument is the famous hymn to love. Love here is meant to be the anchor to nourish and cleanse all the various aspects of worship that surround it. The teaching, exercising of gifts, uh, administering the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and of preaching. The Corinthian church was not functioning in love, evidenced by the de- divisions amongst them. Paul challenges them in chapter 11, in verse 16 and verse 18. You see, I think it's coming up on the screen here. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice. And th- when you come together, let there be no divisions among you. The question being answered here is how can faithful and meaningful worship of Jesus be expressed in a diverse community of believers. And though some have attempted to justify an oppressive view of women from this text because of its references to head and headship and authority, we're going to get to that in a moment, this text is not primarily about roles and relationships between men and women in general, or even between husbands and wives. In this particular chapter, Paul is addressing divisions about male and female leadership, in public worship and the manner in which the Corinthian church was sharing in the Lord's Supper meal together. So let me get that part out of the way. The Lord's Supper verses 20 and 21, you'll see it come up on the screen here, uh, so we can spend more time on the earlier part, which is a little more probably mysterious to us. So Paul is reminding them of the purpose of the Lord's Supper. They had forgotten the goal. They had turned it from a meal to remember and proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection, into this indulgent party where where wealthier members were partying it up and poorer ones in the community were being left hungry in this meal. And back then, the Lord's Supper wasn't just a wafer and a little cup. It was a full-on meal that people shared together. Paul corrects them in their thinking that they are sharing in this mysterious moment with Christ when, in fact, they're just being selfish boors at the community meal. And this is antithetical to the gospel and the call to be a community, Their divisive and selfish behavior together is not honoring worship of Jesus, nor reflecting the love that God calls his people to. Now, turning to the first half of chapter 11, Paul addresses the appropriate leadership in a public worship service. Now, we might miss this because we're stumbling over all the mentions of hairstyles and head coverings and authority and submission. But let me draw your attention to verses 4 and 5 and also verse 13. There, Paul is talking about, if we're not familiar with the practice, our, our attention may be drawn to Paul addressing appropriate head coverings. And in ancient times, in some, and also in some cultures now, head coverings were required for women when they left the home. But note that the setting that Paul is addressing, when they were praying and prophesying. As uh, Josh mentioned to us early, prophecy is speaking God's revelation to a group of people for the building up of the gathered body of God's people. And we're going to get to that in a little bit more uh, in a couple of weeks in chapter 14. And for Paul, that women and men prayed and prophesied in public worship gatherings was not even a question for him. Here, he is providing guidelines for how men and women might pray and prophesy, not whether men and women should pray and prophesy in worship gatherings. This presumption of shared ministry might explain why so many women were attracted to Paul's ministry and supported his ministry at a time when men were typically the main teachers in religious settings. We're told in chapter 1 that Chloe was is a leader in in Corinth that has been keeping Paul informed about the conflicts in the church. Priscilla and Aquila are also leaders in the Corinthian church that Paul and Luke mention multiple times by name in other letters usually with Priscilla's name first. Priscilla was respected respected as a teacher in the church, and together with Aquila, they were sent out as missionaries. They hosted Paul for 18 months when he stayed in Corinth, and they also discipled Apollos, the apostle that came after Paul to Corinth to teach. They taught taught him the ways of the gospel. Paul speaks of another woman named Phoebe, who is from the town of Sancre, which is about five miles from Corinth. That's about the distance between WCF here, this building, and Georgetown. There, Phoebe is called a deacon in the church, which meant that she had a leadership role in the church. She supported Paul's missionary journeys financially as a benefactor. In fact, many scholars believe that Paul entrusted Phoebe to deliver his letter to the Romans and likely explain to the Roman church the contents of the letter because Paul, in that letter, commends Phoebe to them. And it's based on this understanding that's why here at WCF, a person's gender is not a limitation for leadership roles at this church. That's why you see women and men leading and teaching in our services. We affirm leaders based on gifting and affirming the calling of God upon an individual that's discerned together as a faith community together. So that's the setting. It's about leadership and authority. So what's the situation they're running into? Or perhaps it's better to use the indefinite article, what's a situation, because there's a lot of perhapses here. This is where things become a little more murky. Scholars from all theological stripes have attempted to determine what the situation is. And the difficulty lies in understanding Paul's use of the language, in interpreting his, uh, the application of the language, and understanding the historical context and practice of the time. And when you assemble all of the possibilities, all you get is, perhaps, uh, is a lot. Of perhapses. And some helpful resources to dig into this passage is coming on the screen is Lucy Pepiat's book, uh, Women and Worship in Corinth, or Gordon Fee's First Corinthians Commentary, and of course Kenneth Bailey's work that I've been relying on in this series. So let's take a look at a likely situation. In verse 3, Paul launches off saying, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Paul begins this section with a statement on these parallels, what seem to be parallels of headship. And the difficulty is understanding the use of the word head and how far that meaning of that metaphor is intended to be applied in each of those parallel relationships. Now, the word head can be understood in three primary senses. First, there's the physical head, you know, the thing that sits on top of your shoulders. And then there's the second sense, which is authority, much like the president is the head of state, or the CEO is the head of a company who calls the shots and whose leadership affects everyone down below. Then there's a third aspect of head, which is head as source. Here, head is used in a sense of origin or of order, like the source of, an, of a, or origin of a river is the river head, or that first day of Advent is the origin of, of the Advent season, the beginning point. In fact, the Jewish Bible translates the Hebrew word Rosh as head. And it shows up in the Jewish New Year celebration, Rosh Hashanah, which is the head of the year. The first day of the year is not in authority over the rest of the year. Rather, the rest of the year flows from that first day. So we got those three senses, head as physical, authority, and source. And those who advocate for translating head as authority see this passage as reasonable justification for why women should be subordinate to men, not only in church services, but perhaps also in relationships. They might see the three relationships of men with Christ, women with men, and Christ with God as equal parallels in terms of authority. And when you read verse 8 and 9, put that together, that would seem to be a fair reading. But then there are others who advocate for translating head as source. And they read this passage as reasonable justification for origins, understanding head as origins. Humanity proceeds from Christ as creator. Eve, the first woman, proceeded from Adam, the first man in creation. And Christ's incarnation proceeds from the will of the Father as the begotten of the Father. And this too seems to be a fair uh, interpretation. But... Perhaps parsing it out as either or is not the most helpful step. Remember, this issue that Paul is addressing here is not whether women or men have authority to teach, but it's how they use that authority in ways that serve the good of the community. And for Paul, women have a significant authority that traces all the way back to creation. So I want you to take a look at this chiasm of verses like seven through 13 and what's at the center of it if you take a look i know it's very small you can go back and look at it or pull up the slide presentation but there's these parallels of dependence of uh, parallels of uh, and that center all to verse 10 kenneth bailey helpfully illustrates this chiasm for us sandwich between the head coverings of 7 and 13 and where men and women come from in verses 8 and 12 and their mutual dependence in verses 9 and 11 and at the the chiasm is uh, at the center of the Kaizem is verse 10, and it's very cryptic to our ears and eyes. How? Rabbis historically argued that in the first creation, it was the angels who were there to witness and give praise to God's work, because no one else was there, no humans. And in the new creation of God, the church, which is the new temple, the angels were also there for the same reason, to praise God for this new way of living. What were the angels attesting to? The authority on the head of the woman. That's what they were praising. In Genesis 2, the Hebrew word ezer, which is translated as helper, the helper that is being suitable, as a suitable helper for Adam, is often perceived as being subservient to Adam, the one being helped. But there's something interesting about this word ezer in the Old Testament. Most every other time in the Old Testament, that word is referred to used to refer to God as helper. God is the one who comes and helps and saves God's people. And God is hardly to be understood as weaker or subservient to humanity. Adam is the one whom God helped. And how did God help him? By sending a helper named Eve. And it's for this reason that woman should have the sign of authority on her head when she prophesies before the worshiping congregation. Think of Queen Elizabeth II, who wears a crown. That's a sign of authority on her head. For Corinthian women, wearing a head covering while leading in the congregation was a visible sign of her authority to proclaim a prophetic word to the congregation. So, for the women of Corinth, Paul might be saying here, don't view the head covering as a sign of subservience. Though it signals differentiation, see it as a symbol of your authority to exercise your prophetic gifts in leadership, along with male prophets. Do it because of the angels. They're praising God because of that authority. The head coverings are not about gender subordination, but about gender differentiation for the sake of mission. Not about subordination, but about differentiation for the sake of the mission they were facing. The Corinthian woman perhaps had heard Paul's teachings that all things were lawful to me. And they saw that men could lead in the church without head coverings. And so they decided, well, we can do that as well because the gospel set us free. But this was causing some in the church who came from different cultural backgrounds and they were participating in this worship service. And they were distracted because of what would be expected to be appropriate attire in that particular setting. There was Jews and Greeks And Romans, they all had different expectations for women's head coverings in public and in a church that had all people groups represented. And now there was women teaching, which was not typical of the time. Paul was encouraging them to do what was necessary so that they wouldn't be a stumbling block for others to hear the gospel. So put it another way, imagine if our senators or congresspeople showed up to their deliberations dressed up in speedos, and a bikini. I didn't find an image for that, okay? That might make more news, but it would probably fail to make more laws that serve the good of our nation. Paul is responding to an issue of order in worship. Paul could have said, women, just stop praying and prophesying because it's causing a disturbance for the community. But that's not what he said. He affirms the rightness of both male and and female leadership in public worship. And he solves the problem by telling the women to cover their heads while leading worship. So why? Paul is not dealing with hierarchical authority here. Instead, Paul is advocating for an authority that serves the interests of the whole community. It's an authority that is based on mutual interdependence. You know, in verses 11 and 12, that's where we see it turn up. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent. Oh, man is not independent. No, yeah, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Now, in light of e, understanding that Eve helping Adam was from a position of complementary strength, not of subservience, Paul sees women as the descendants of Eve, placed by God as the strong ones who come to help Adam, the one in need. Paul points back to the continuing effect of creation. Yes, Eve was the first woman that came from Adam. But think about this every other man in history has come forth from a woman. Instead of Paul being the male chauvinist, we can read Paul as the compassionate one who affirms the equality and mutual inter- interdependence. Of men and women in God's kingdom. Both women and men who lead are needed in the kingdom of God. Getting rid of men because of their failures of authority is just as unhelpful as presuming that women can't be in positions of leadership. Both are required. So, when, with mutual interdependence in mind, let's return to this problem of head is it source or is it authority? Perhaps the attempt to isolate the interpretations of head as source versus head as authority is not as helpful as we think. I want you to consider how they might actually overlap. For example, the head of an organization or of a nation is the source and the guide of the direction of an organization, or they should be at least, right? That's what a good leader does. And they are mutually Interrelated concepts that cannot really be separated exclusively from one another. Authority and origin are both closely related. For example, if, you, if at work someone comes to you and tells you, Hey, Andrew, I got a new job for you. This is a whole new direction for our department. You'll, first thing you'll say is, who told you this? What's the source? And who is the authority to make the call? If your coworker is the source, then you can probably ignore it. But if it comes from the CEO, then you take it seriously because they have the authority and they're the source of the, the new direction. Authority and origin are often closely linked. They both come from the head. So preferring a translation of head as source doesn't get away from its association with authority. And understandably, we are skeptical of this idea of authority because of the abuse rendered by unjust applications of authority. No one likes to have authority wielded over them through coercion or through abuse. This is not a use of authority that is reflective of the kingdom of God. But it doesn't mean that any authority or any authority structure is antithetical to the gospel. At the end of the day, Paul does advocate for differentiation between women and men leading in the service based on the expected norms of the time. The woman may have had the freedom and authority to uncover their heads when leading in public in light of the gospel. But Paul asks them to cover their heads out of an authority that seeks to serve those who are listening. This approach seems to be in line with how Paul has been encouraging them so far in this letter to prioritize the flourishing of the community by withholding individual rights and freedoms and to consider those of weaker faith In the community. And if we're not convinced based on Paul's argument here for how to use your authority, consider the life of Jesus, God incarnate. Jesus chooses to use the authority he has over all of creation, and he constrains it in the form of a Jewish carpenter in the first century to ultimately give himself as a broken body to the broken body of Christ that she might have life and have life to the full. As followers of God, that is our call as well, to live and to lead in such a way that the broken body of Christ and the broken world around us may experience Christ's life to the full. Now, whether you are a parent or a manager or an elder or a deacon or a volunteer, you have God-given authority. And as a faith community, we seek to embody that authority in a manner that serves the greater good of all. That, perhaps, is the posture of authority that invites Jesus, that Jesus invites all followers to. May we be that kind of body. May we live in that authority that serves all. Amen.